You're listening to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, recorded December 11th, 2019. A focus on teaching. Board game teacher tips. We offer some help to a game teacher in need, then talk necromancers prom and more Feld fun. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, episode 71, A Focus on Teaching. From Hamilton, I'm Sean, and here with me, live and direct from Windsor, Ontario, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Mo T. I am the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, answering your gaming and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. Let me put my years of game playing, event organizing, and game night hosting to use for you. I'd like to welcome everyone here in Twitch in the lobby. We start live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop. All right, today we've got someone looking for some help teaching games. Later, I've got a review of Dead Man's Cabal from Pandasaurus Games, and a look at the Spiel-nominated Stefan Feld game, Carpe Diem, in our Week in Review, and a little bit of play of the Imhotep A New Dynasty expansion. We love interacting with our listeners and viewers. Each week, we're going to highlight some of our interactions with you fine folk. We'll be sharing some feedback we've received, comments on our content, maybe some gaming discussions we've been part of online. We want to share what people are saying, both positive and negative. We get better with your comments and suggestions. If you'd like to let us know something about the show, send your email to mo at tabletopbellhop.com and or sean at tabletopbellhop.com. That's S-E-A-N. You can also hit us up on social media where I can be found everywhere as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. We should toss in your Twitter on there or something. Or I, and yeah, I can be found everywhere yeah. as... Sure. Just, we don't put you out there. No, because I'm a jerk and people keep muting me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I can be found everywhere offending people. Yeah, I can just check out... A, check me on Twitter to see if you've blocked me yet or not. There you go. Sean's views do not necessarily reflect the, the views of the tabletop bell team. Yeah, yeah, probably I, in most cases they do, yeah. but not not officially. <laughs> yep. All right. Up first, uh, comment on our list of the top gateway games to come out in the last three years. This is two weeks in a row people have been talking about that one, so that's cool. Uh, Thor Hansen writes, I played Planet last night. It is fun and fast and pretty repeatable. To the list, I would add Imhotep. Fast and easy to learn with some really good skill growth potential. Well, we have talked about Planet before, and I know Mo's a big fan, but we haven't all played it yet, and we don't own a copy yet. Uh, Imhotep just sneaks in on that three-year mark for now. That's close. But, uh, you know, Christmas and New Year's are coming. (laughs) Uh, So, LOMDR Craft Dragon had something to say about our casual game nights for four to six players episode. So, yeah, out of the five suggested gateways... Three of them have been usurped with easier to grok games. Catan, Machikoro, and Space Bake Base, Pandemic, Forbidden Series, and Horrified, Seven Wonders, Sushi Go, Sagrada, King Domino. Haven't seen a usurper for Kark or Ticket to Ride yet. Like, I haven't seen a freeform tile placement game that I would say usurps Carcassonne, and I haven't seen an open draw, passive aggressive set collection game like Ticket to Ride, except for maybe like Jaipur, but my feelings on player count factors in. All right, thanks for the comments, Craft Dragon. 
Uh, this ties in a bit with the last comment. There are some great modern gateway games to have come out recently to compete with those old classics. Now, personally, I wouldn't go so far as to say they've been replaced. Uh, Catan in particular sticks out. I still think Catan is a fantastic game, and I still play it fairly regularly. We had Sean down, and we had some people from Toronto down, and we played a couple of grounds of Catan, and it was still a ton of fun. I don't think that game's been replaced in any way. Now, as for Pandemic being replaced by the Forbidden series, here's one I gotta disagree, because I do not like the Forbidden series, and I would rather play them than Pandemic, and anyone that listens to the show knows how much I love Pandemic, so that's not saying much. Um, now, Horrified? Yeah, okay, I can see that one. I do love Horrified. Horrified wasn't out when I wrote that blog post. Horrified is a fantastic gateway co-op game. I, I can't... Nope, totally right there. Now I'm really confused by Seven Wonders being replaced by Sagrada or King Domino. To me, that's a big stretch. I don't even see how those scratch the same itch in any way whatsoever. I don't see those as drafting games. Like, yeah, I guess you're drafting dice, but it's not the whole, I have a hand of things to pick from and I pass my hand. There's no pick and pass there. Um, though I do admit, I do not think of Seven Wonders as a good gateway game. Uh, that goes back to that exact same game night where we played Catan. We had a really bad experience with an unexperienced gamer with a bunch of us gamers thinking, oh, Seven Wonders is easy to pick up. Well, not if you never played a hobby board game before and you're not familiar with things like set collection and resource management and having to pay costs to get things it was way over the head for someone and i actually would remove that from the list i would no longer keep seven wonders as a, a listed as a gateway game ever to be honest to me that's a next step game now play something else like sushi go or um I, I, your idea of space space may be a good one or any of the simpler pick and pass games first um What's the one I really like? I'm drawing a blank right now. It's from Stronghold Games. There's a space base. I'm actually drawing a blank on a game. I might get back to it. <laughs> I am totally remember. I, I can picture the box, but I can't. Race for the... No, not Race for the Galaxy. Dang. Oh, well, I can't remember. You got anything on that while I think about this? Uh, No. Uh, Really. Uh, Just, uh, no. I can't, can't think All of right. what that one might be. All right. Uh, as for a replacement for Carcassonne, this one, that's where I think King Domino right? Because you're drafting tiles and you're putting them matching up sides. Uh, another more modern one, simpler one is Enchanted Forest. Uh, as for a Ticket to Ride replacement, if we're not sticking to the last three years, I actually prefer Sink Tear as a game where you're complete. You're not completing routes in that one, but you're doing the card thing where you're collecting sets of cards and turning them in for set collection. Now, regardless of my whether I agree with Craft Dragon's thoughts or not on those, we will toss all of their suggestions to the show notes. Uh, not every game is for everyone, and everyone has their own opinion on which games are best. And I'm sure some of you out there will agree with Craft Dragon over me. All right. Up next, a few comments on our two-player co-op suggestions from last week. Gene Chu writes, My favorite is Sword and Sorcery. I also like Pandemic as a two-player co-op game. Another favorite of mine is Star Realms or Hero Realms. Well, thanks, Gene. I'm not familiar with Sword and Sorcery, but after giving it a look on uh, Board Game Geek, I'm really quite interested. That actually looks great. Uh, and I think Pandemic, we've uh, let our feelings known, and Star Realms is great. Star Realms really is a fantastic game. I think we did mention that at least a little bit during... Uh, in the comments last week. In the comments last week, um, Deb from White Wizard yes. Games wanted to point out that we should should have mentioned Star Realms and Hero Realms, so they did yep. come up. Uh, so we'll be tossing those in the show note as well. Now, Ghost Stromboli at MassCrafter on Twitter writes, Mo, thanks for all the suggestions in the latest video. I'm always on the hunt for two-player games. If they are cooperative, is even better. 
So much great information as usual. Uh, you're welcome there, Stromboli. I got to say, I love getting feedback like this. At the same time, we got Jay Feast just jumped in the chat to say hi and thanks how much they enjoy the show. Just that, I, I love that validation. Thank you very much. It's awesome to hear that, that people are enjoying what we're putting out there. That is, that is fantastic. Thank you both for those comments, or thank you for joining us, and thank you for that comment. Kalor Samirian at Bear Shaman Problems on Twitter commented, They're older, but I also really enjoy Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert. May not be the best for the vision impaired, though. Well, thanks, Keller. It's always great when we get those heads up so that we can warn our listeners about problematic content in games, whether it's accessibility or otherwise. Uh, now, our last comment comes from YouTube, left by Theoden925 on Tori's solo mission playthrough for Gloomhaven. So, I'm a level 7 music note right now, and interesting to see how different our card choices have been based on the group dynamic. You're more, you're more support-based, whereas I have had to become more of a damage dealer. Also, as far as constructive criticism goes, Echoing Aria is a bad card to play. I'm of the opinion that Retaliate is bad in most situations. I tend to play Disorienting Dirge song first round, and then never pick it up again. Constant Disadvantage has saved me and my party countless times. Oh, thanks for the comment, Theoden. I did pass this off to Tori. Uh, he did have one quick reply that said, I suppose that's true. Rather than taking a hit to retaliate, it's better to take the longer route and running through curses. But he really likes that card because it's the one he uses to do range three curses and blesses and really stacks up both ours and the enemy's decks. Uh, Kat, who's the other person we played with, also noted that disadvantage would be good for the person who takes most of the hits. Uh, she's playing our Berserker. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this week's comments. Thank you to everyone who shares, comments, and interacts with our content. We start Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern here on Twitch, and we love people who drop in and take part in our chat room, The Lobby. If you're here live, remember to stick around as we continue the show after the double bell. Uh, so far, we've had some uh, chat... Uh, trash... <laughs> Trasharama has uh, been unboxing a new resin printer, and uh, nice. Anchi Games is uh, drooling over that idea. Uh, we've there was... got... Uh, we had Jay Feast joining back. us to say hello and, and thanking us. Thank you very much for that. Uh, actually, I see Cat Attack is actually in the uh, oh, the go. chat room, so uh, we might get some Gloomhaven chat going on in there. There, and, Tori can reply live if he happens to be paying attention. He can uh, he can let us know his his thoughts. Uh, we'll, and we'll Tech is next time we play. Tech is back joining us after a uh, a run of week uh, of uh, afternoons. Yeah, always great to have some of the the regulars drop back in when they're available. I'll say one thing, I do not miss shift work, though. That's kind of what I did the last couple of weeks, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was by choice. That's though. kind of what Amazon uh, forces you into these days. Yeah, yeah, I did shift works for sharing deals. I did the night shift for the last two weeks, basically, finally trying to get back to normal. Yeah. Uh, what was it I was going to mention? Now I forget. There was something, there was something, now I forget. Oh, something I saw in the chat. Sword and Sorcery, I haven't checked out myself either. It did yeah. look cool. It was, a, it was a lot of expansions for that game. Yeah, I don't but as soon as as soon as I is. started, just started reading the description of it on Board Game Geek, I'm yeah. like, oh, this actually sounds really it, it's cool. It's kind of like, like a modern hero quest, from what I understand. But I just I love the concept because you're starting with these resurrected heroes who are weak and 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 you're building them back up to the great heroes they were. Yeah, and that's just a that's just a fun concept. Whether it's played, I don't know whether it's played out well or not. Uh, Trasherama says he uh, seems to like it, and that's a good sign. Yeah, that's not one I not one I've tried. It's not even one I've really sucked seat so sucked out. 
Sought out. out. Sought. It's there. That's sought what I was looking for. There you go. Sought out. Not one I've sought out. So many games. You can't play them all. That nope. is the problem. It's so I get like me. We're doing. I'm doing pretty good for that. I, I shared a picture of the origin pile. Or I didn't share it. I found it, and my my I was going through old pictures, and I'm like, oh, we're pretty close to playing all those. And then there's some that I got right away that we nailed off really quick, and I'm like, oh, I got to get reviews out on those, and that's why <laughs> part of the reason why I'm talking about that man's cabal today because it's been a while. Like we played, well, I played and we talked about it. it a lot, and so it yeah. seems like we've given a review. Like I was reading through the review, and I'm like, well, yeah, I, I know yeah, this. <laughs> this is all the stuff we said before. <laughs> I, it's one of the we have at this point, I think adequately covered probably all of the games just through the podcast but i would like to get out some formal reviews for at least some of them there are ones i'm probably not going to do formal reviews on for example tower of madness i i think we've covered our thoughts on tower of madness pretty clearly on the show and i don't think that needs an yeah, in-depth yeah. discussion Although, we've already had I mean, the designer compl- already <laughs> reply to that's true my, my comments on that yeah so I, I considered it just so I could be out there and, and have a negative review because I know some people prefer to see those now and then to be like, hey, yeah, they don't really get positive. But then not, I think today's review kind of touches on that too. So Yeah, I mean, I, I, to be honest, it's probably not a bad idea to have a negative review of that game out there because we really didn't like it much. Yeah. I mean, it really wasn't worth uh, and having know. and just, just having that out there in the in the world saying, you know. Oh, hey, that might, be, that might be our review next week. We will see. <laughs> All right. You guys already had the spoiler on what we think. <laughs> I I will say that it's been popular with other people. Yep. That that's not gone over great with me, but when I bring it out to events, people seem to dig it. Well, it's a it's a it's one of those things where if it's somebody else's game, you can sort of enjoy it for the heck of it and yeah, move on. You're done. Uh, where but buying that game, I I struggle I struggle to see the the benefit of buying that game. That's one of those, if you own a game group, like if you're part of a club or whatever, do you want, like you're going to do themed yep. game nights. If you do a Halloween game night every year or you're a local game store, more yep. for those purposes. All right. So tonight we are answering a question specifically about teaching games, something we talked about a bit and we'll, we'll cover that as well. So what we're looking for from the chat room is if you have any teaching tips, game teaching tips, uh, it's going to be about in particular focus keeping focus while teaching is is going to be the the new part of it uh we're also going to recap our general overview of teaching because we have covered this topic somewhat in the past but it's been a long time it goes all the way back to episode five so if you've got any tips for teaching games uh as from the perspective of the teacher not from the perspective of the players all right well we'll be back checking into the lobby a few more times during the show we're here to answer your game, gaming, or game night questions. You can send your questions to questions at tabletopbellhop.com or go over to tabletopbellhop.com and click on Ask the Bellhop. Uh, social media works too. I'm everywhere as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Now, the best way is for questions to go through the website. It's definitely true because that way they don't get lost. I don't miss them. I don't get a missed notification. They don't end up in my Facebook other folder. For those of you who don't know what that is, look into it because you probably got 20 messages there. You didn't know we're there. Uh, they weren't muted by Twitter or whatever. Uh, that's the best way to do it. I'm not going to say no to a question asked anywhere. Now, I am going to say something right now. We could use more questions. We're not at the bottom of the barrel, but we are getting towards the bottom of the pot. So we are looking for your questions. Questions like... All right, this week we've got a question from S. Darkwell, who writes, A few months ago, I began a bi-weekly-ish gaming night. My friends provide the location, and my girlfriend and I provide the games and teach them to play. I've come to realize that I'm atrocious at describing how to play board games. I'm relatively new to these games myself, but if I were to simply sit down and play, I could do so without issue. 
The moment it comes time to teach others, however, my mind becomes scattered and I begin forgetting even fundamental rules. I regularly spent hours watching board game review how-to play videos, but they don't seem to have improved my teaching skills in any meaningful way. I suspect that the issue is that in any given situation, my focus snaps to the social aspects of the environment when I should be describing the board game. Instead, I'm noticing whenever anyone shifts their weight, glances elsewhere, or moves a component. The irony is that in the past, I've been hired to give informative presentations on stage in front of hundreds of people and never had an issue. Something about the smaller, more personal environment makes teaching a board game a far greater challenge. Firstly, do you have any recommendations on how to teach board games, how to better teach board games in general? And secondly, do you have any suggestions on how to maintain focus on teaching the game instead of the people in the room? Thank you in advance for the advice and be well. And now I really wish I had a Casey Kasem impression. I just... <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks so much for the detailed question, S. Um, I got to say, I love that style of question. I love the long-form questions. That gives us a lot more to work with, a lot more to dig into than please help us teach games or please give me three-player games that feature dinosaurs and pink pirates. I, I, I dig the long-form questions, so thank you for that. Uh, so we did, as I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago in the lobby, we, co we have covered teaching games in the past, uh, specifically two times, way back to episode five, Back to School. I gave some general teaching tips on tips on what I do to teach a game or the, the tricks I use when teaching a game. And then we answered a question about the difference between teaching gamers and non-gamers or new gamers versus experienced gamers. And that was in episode 23, second semester. Now, those are both still great places to look for some overall and general game teaching advice, though I have to admit we sound a bit rough in episode five. Now, what neither of those questions directly address is the second part of S's question here. Plus, it's been a while since we've covered teaching in general. Like, episode 5 was a long time ago at this point, so is uh, episode 23. We're on 72, 71 now. So it's been a while. So I think a quick overview wouldn't hurt. So we're going to go over my general teaching rules, my general teaching tips, but there's going to be more in-depth from the long time ago and the older episodes. Now, the other thing that our previous discussions on teaching really focused on was the players. It was all on what you can do to get through to the players, not a lot on focus on the person teaching. So this is, we're going to throw that in with this to more directly ad uh, address S's question. Absolutely. Again, it, there's, there's a lot of different factors here. Uh, and again, we, we don't necessarily know what their group is made up of, what their, uh, you know, the relationship within the group is. We know it's him and his girlfriend uh, who are, who are, you know, the gamers of the organ of the, of the group teaching to other people. But, you know, it could be, you know, close friends, acquaintances, you know, things like that can make a difference too, because the level of comfort you have with people you're teaching can really make a big difference. Yep. And one of I, I would say S and their girlfriend, because we don't know for sure. That's true. Um, so one of the things we talked about before is learning how players learn and trying to focus on this. Now, this is something you could either ask people how they learn best or something you learn over time, or just make sure you cover all the bases. So are we gonna basically reiterate this because I still think it's worthwhile advice and it's not something everyone thinks about when they're going to teach something. Now, this applies to basically teaching anything, not just teaching games. Um, and that's the fact that people learn in a variety of different ways and different people are going to focus more or be more adept at learning through different methods. Uh, the main three being reading, listening, and watching. So reading, uh, 
going back to S's question specifically here, I personally learn better by reading. Deanna is a perfect example of someone who I'm better off handing a rule book or letting her read the rule book ahead of time than sitting down at the table trying to teach her to play. She absorbs way better by reading than by listening or watching. Now, if you know you're going, you're going to, you have difficulty teaching and you have players at the table who love reading and learn that way, perhaps you can get them the book ahead of time. So you can pass or pass the book around if it's not too big. If it's only four page rule book, pass it around. While I'm setting up this table, how about you guys read through the rule book quick? Or if you know you're going to have three players, print off three PDF copies of the game. Or bring PDFs on mobile devices or ask people to bring them up on their phones. This may save you from having to teach at all. It'll let the players do the work themselves. Absolutely. And this is this can be a huge benefit. Uh, I know recently, perfect uh, instance is Horrified. Um, I hadn't played it uh, during Extra Life, whereas you had, and you were comfortable teaching it, but you guys were upstairs, you know, getting the girls off to school, I think, and I sat down with the, the book, had a quick read-through, so that when we sat down, yeah, there was still some teaching, but it was more of a, oh, here's the actual pieces and mm -hmm. things, because I'd only read the manual and I hadn't seen the bits. Uh, but, you know, having that little bit of extra familiarity of reading through the manual, even just flipping through the manual can make a huge difference. Yeah. So another tip too is to have uh, player summary sheets, esoteric order of gamers we mentioned many times in the show, summary sheets, rule summaries, player cards, stuff for the readers to look at while you're teaching is another, another just a bonus tip there so that you give them something to read while you're teaching, which again can help S because it's going to take the player's focus off of you, them, and put it onto something else, which may actually help with that nervousness, which we'll get to more of that later. Yep. Now, as for a second learning technique, Technique. Next is listening. So now this is probably the most common. Someone wants to sit and listen to you teach. This is the tried and true method they've we've used to teach our kids for good or bad for many, many, many years. Uh, someone teaches, hopefully by already knowing the rules, uh, possibly by reading the rule book. I personally am a very strong proponent of learn the rules before you teach. Don't sit and read the rule book to the group. Uh, this does sound like how things are going for us. It sounds like S is sitting down to the table with their friends and and teaching verbally by teaching out the rules uh this is it's got to be done in a way right like this is the default method this is this is how it's going to happen the thing is to add the other stuff to it so you're touching multiple bases especially when we get to the next method of learning so you don't want to just if you can don't just sit and narrate try to make it interesting all of the 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 social speaking things right um gauge player interest, all, all the stuff you would have in a normal public speaking. Now, this is one I, I more recommend. Listen to our previous episode because we go into more detail on how to make sure people are listening. Yeah. But in this case, this is probably the main way you're going to be teaching. And it's more use the other tricks with this. Now, one thing that he mentioned, they mentioned, sorry, I still don't want to assume. One thing they mentioned is that they get distracted when they're teaching by the things the other people are doing. Now, little trick, especially since they do mention that they have done public speaking events is get a bright light in your eyes. If you've got a light behind someone that's distracting you and, you know, keeping you focused the way you would if you're on stage, you know, having that bright light in your eyes helps you focus on what you're talking about. Now, this has got, this has got some problems in other aspects of, of how we, we, we think you should teach. But if you are finding yourself being distracted by little things like that, sometimes finding something else to focus on mm -hmm. as a distraction can really help you step back away from focusing on little details that have no, uh, you know, have no benefit. Yep. 
All right. The, the third method of learning is watching. Uh, one of the things is it's important not just to talk when teaching. So this is basically what I was alluding to a few seconds ago. You also want to do things. Go through the motions. Move pieces. Flip cards. Point to things. Touch things. Um, focus on the, on the game. Now, going back to S's problem, perhaps another alternative to S teaching is to use all those videos they mentioned. Uh, they watch tons of videos, they know where to find the videos, bring a tablet to game night or stop off in front of a PC or a smart TV and bring up a watch it play video. We have done this. I've only done it once at my house, but there was a game I wanted to learn. The instruction book was a little too thick and we wanted to get it to the table that night. And I'm like, look, I don't want to read from the rule book to you guys. Let's all move over to the TV. Let's boot up um, YouTube. I found a watch it play video. We sat down and watched the watch it play video. And then we went and played brass is what that game particular was. And I'm like, that's a bigger, heavier game. That wasn't something I was going to teach from the rule book. Um, or bring everyone bring it up on their phones. Possibly not the best way to do it because everyone's going to, well, at least if you're all sitting around the TV, you're being somewhat social. Uh, we have actually done that for also an FAQ where we brought it up and literally just stood a tablet up on the side and everyone kind of watched it and went, oh, okay, that's how you do it. And another example is many games now have QR codes that you can scan to watch them. So it's another thing you do right then is, hey, all right, I've kind of explained what's going on. Let's bring up the QR code and let's put this tablet on and let's all sit and watch a watch a play video or something like that. Yep. Now, I, there's a bunch of things going on here. Part of it is you don't want to be a perfectionist. You're going to make mistakes in your first play. We talk over and over again about, you know, playing the extreme rules, right? Yep. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, now, again, there could be players in the group that are hardcore gamers and have issues with that, but that's a different that's a different issue. Realistically, there's nothing wrong with making mistakes on your first time through. Yeah. It's probably going to happen no matter how good a teacher you are. Um, I, when it comes to the watching issue, uh, I find realistically the best way to play is watching you all play. Uh, mm -hmm. If you can actually start a game and say, look, we're going to play, uh, you know, a 20 minute intro to this game and learn as we play. And then we're going to throw it all out and start over again. This can be a huge benefit to some people who just need to see how things actually interact yeah. and how pieces move and how scoring happens. And again, depending on the game with, you know, something like uh, DC deck builder, not as beneficial because mostly you're just moving cards around and reading whatever it says on the card. But if you're playing something intricate like uh, Dead Men's Cabal or, you know, Imhotep, where how things move makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. You know, if you take 20 minutes and rather than reading the rule book, play around and, and struggle a little bit and help everyone understand that movement and that interaction, mm -hmm. you're watching yourself play and, 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 and learning as a group. And you don't have to be that teacher that's standing up in front of the class. Yeah, Sean basically stole what I was going to say next. So, <laughs> like I say, basically, the, there's the three ways to learn, but there is one more. The, the fourth, which is doing, actually physically doing. And I set that one aside because that is the most effective. The best way to learn a new skill, to learn something new, is to actually do it. Physically do the thing. Go through the process. Uh, before you get to actually jumping into the game, which is one of my big suggestions, is if you don't, if it's a game you do need some front-loading, you do have to teach stuff, have people get involved. Don't do it all yourself. Have the other players help you set up. Have them move the pieces. Have them start out hand, with starting hands. If you want to show an example of a hand how to build a house, give them the hand of cards with the hand with with the the resources to build a house, and have them put the meeple on the board and have them physically do it. Um, 
And then, as Sean said, if you can get to the game as soon as possible, get playing. A lot of games. A perfect example of this is I was teaching Dead Man's Cabal Extra Life. Not Dead Man's Cabal. Dead Man's Draw. Dead Man's Draw. Sorry. Dead Man's Draw card game. A push your luck card game. And I it had been a long time since I played it, and I could have read through the rules. And I'm like, no, let's just flip up a card. It's a hook. What's that do? Grab the rule book. Look up what a hook does. All right. Draw the next card. It's a sword. What's that do? Oh, it's another hook. We know what that one does, right? By the time we played through one full round, we'd gone through all the different tent card types. We then went, all right, everyone knows all the cards. We're going to throw this game out. We're going to start over. We're going to play. That's the whole lost time fallacy. We brought it up on the show before. Because you have started a game, you don't have to finish, especially a teaching game. And that that's our pro tip, right? Go play until everyone understands the game, then start over and play for real. That first game should always be considered a teaching game for everyone involved. You're probably going to make mistakes. Don't worry about who's winning. Don't worry about if someone messes up something or forgot something two turns ago. This is when it's perfectly fine for Sean to go, oh, you know what? Two turns ago, I should have taken two points because I did this. Let Sean do it. This is where you're all just trying to learn the game. It's also a chance for experienced players. Here's where you play silly. You play stupid. You use you, you use um, strategies you never would normally do in a normal game. This is where you can kind of mess with the other players because this game doesn't matter. This is your teaching game. Then once you're done the teaching game, you play again and play for real. Although don't mess with people too much because you still want them to learn the game yeah, well, and also yes, like yes. the game. You don't want to, you know, if you, if in your teaching game, even though scoring doesn't matter, you've tromped them 500 to three. The, you know, <laughs> yeah, might it's, not it's a game the where you're playing Zaya and you try to jump into the sun is more what yeah. I was trying to suggest. Yes, yeah, not yeah. not the let's keep poking the bear method of <laughs> goofing around with the game. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, you know, this goes into something again that we've said so many times since we picked it up at Breakout, which is fail faster. And that goes with playing the game too. get in there, play the game, fail, play extreme and learn from those failures because a lot of times people aren't going to realize those mistakes until they've actually made them themselves. So uh, another thing too is once you've done your teach, right? Once you played once, reread the rule book. This is something every game teacher should do. So you figure out what you did to extreme. Uh, uh, one that I've seen people do at cons that I think this is actually a brilliant thing is you do the teach, right? You do the thing and then you're going to do your restart. It's time to play the real game now. Take a washroom break, bring the rule book with you, do a quick review while you're getting that little break, while the game's getting reset up, and then when you come back, that way you don't look like you had to check the rules, right? Yeah. All no, right, I... get into the... Yep. Go ahead. Nope, go ahead. All right, get into the second part of S's question. We already we already covered some ways they can they can do some things to try to to help with their focus, right? So S's problem here is that they basically get nervous and anxious when going to teach a game and forget the game rules. So here are a few suggestions we've come up with, or I've come up with. I'm sure Sean's got some of his own. Uh, one of the main ones to me, and I do this myself because I'll have the same problem. If I'm spending too much time looking at the players. I'm going to get frustrated by the player who's on their phone. I'm going to get annoyed at someone who's obviously not going to be paying attention. And I'm going to be nudging Deanna to wake her up because she's falling asleep because she'd be better off reading the rule book. One of the things I do to stop that, because I realize people do learn different ways. Meanwhile, the player who's on their phone is on their phone because they played the game before and they don't care. The player who's falling asleep has already read the rule book, right? That might be the case. Um... What I try to do is focus on the game components, the game, the table, the, the state of the table. I don't look at the players. I focus on the game. 
This isn't public speaking. You're not trying to orate and project and connect with the audience. You're trying to teach a game. Eyes on the cards, the boards, the components. And as I said before, make sure you do. Make sure you're moving things around. Make sure you're flipping cards. When you say you draw seven cards, draw seven cards. When you say you move your guy from here to here on the board, move a guy from here to here on the board. When it says collect resources, grab the resources and hand them to that player who's on their phone to bring them back to the table. Um... Make it very obvious where your focus is. So while you're talking about a section of the board, like use your hands to kind of guide people or lean over the board that way. And not only will your focus be there, other people's focus will follow. They'll be like, oh, what are you looking at? Right. They're going to lean into. Yeah, no, it's it's a big thing. And again, this this goes to this, what I was saying earlier about, you know, find something to distract yourself with. So whether you're staring into a light or whatever, if you're staring at the board, you're not worrying about the other things. And part of what you are getting into is you might be worrying about the other people and whether or not they're learning. Well, guess what? Doesn't matter. You're there to teach. They're there to learn. If they don't want to learn, you aren't going to make them learn. So you need to teach the game and let them worry about learning. And if they have questions, they need to re be responsible enough to ask those questions or, hey, can you slow, slow down a little bit? Or, hey, could you go over that thing you just did again? That's mm -hmm. on them. You need to just teach as you know. And it sounds like you know the rules. I mean, it sounds mm -hmm. like this person has, has, has put in the time, put in the effort, and knows this game. And that's great. That's the very first step. But once you do that, teaching it is a matter of passing it on, but you can't be responsible for someone else taking it in. That's mm -hmm. on them. And it sounds like there's a little bit of that worrying about the other players too much, which is natural, but it's something you need to get over. Uh, and let them learn if they want to learn. And if not, well, they're going to be the one who's not enjoying the game as much, unfortunately. Yeah, or unfortunately, you may have the player where they're going to ask you things you've explained 20 times already, multiple times while you play, and it happens. Yep. Some people are like that. Yep. Uh, they're going to have missed things, and that's just something you're going to have to deal with. And I wonder if once they're playing, if S doesn't have that problem, now that they're in the game state, if someone's like, oh, I can't remember, is it 20 or 30 points when I do this? If they're perfectly fine then, it's just the anxiety of standing in front of the small group and everyone's attention's focused on them. Yep. Which is another thing I want to address is perhaps the problem is that. It's the fact that you have a table of four people looking expectantly at you, not a room full of people. Room full of people is something abstract. Three people right in your face looking at you is very different, socially and anxiety-wise. So one of the things to do is get it so that the players aren't looking at you. So as Sean said, you can be distracted. Maybe a, a, a different way to look at it is to distract the players. Now, again, this to me goes back to getting them to do something, getting them to look at the boards, getting them to shuffle. If it's not, if it isn't a game where you can have them do that, find something to distract the players. So, hey, can you shuffle this deck? Hey, can you grab these dice? Hey, can you put the baggies back into the box? Just something to kind of keep them busy so they're not looking at you while you teach. Now, you don't want to distract them too much. So, I would try to keep it game focused. So, if possible, it can be, how about you all draw your starting hands? How about you count the number of cards you've got in your deck? Stuff like that so they're still focused on the game. Like, I wouldn't send anyone away from the table, obviously. But if you can give them something to do so they're not staring in your face that may help yep uh and again it's one of those things where maybe you need to start teaching earlier so if you're going to someone's house and setting up the game and then sitting down and teaching maybe that teaching should start as soon as you put that board down on the table yeah. and getting them to help spread out that game put out the game because as you're teaching that um as you're as you're putting those pieces out and getting your hands on it uh, you're learning, right? Every time you're touching the game and touching the pieces, you are learning. 
Uh, and so that's a teaching experience right from the time the box lid comes off. And like I said, use a mix, right? You touch them and have them touch them too. Try to get both. Yep. Uh, then next, I want to recommend that you practice, right? Uh, as we said before, teaching is a skill. I don't know if we said it today, but at least in our previous episodes, and every skill gets better by doing it. And you can practice. Now, I don't know about teaching in front of a mirror, but play the game solo. Touch the component solo. Play it by yourself. While you're playing by yourself, talk out loud. Talk as if you were teaching. Talk about the movements you're doing. Okay, and now I'm going to play five cards. And by playing five cards, that means I get to take this resource. And that resource I'm taking so that I can do this. And say that as you're playing solo with yourself. So you get familiar with talking about the rules, the uh, technology of the game is the wrong word, the mechanics, the the nomenclature, the, the vocabulary of the game you want to get used to. That's one I'm terrible at. I am like, besides the fact I'm always going to tell cranking, tapping, twisting is always going to be tapping. But like some games call collecting resources one thing and another game will call it something else or our terminology sometimes gets, gets mixed up and I tend to use generic ones, but I try to stick to the ones used in those games. Um, or, or when we were playing Pulsar 2849, I kept calling they were arrays, they were communicators, they were telescope. I don't know. We kept coming up with different names for the things. If you can learn them. Uh, another thing, too, is practice, right? Um, I don't know. Like, S is obviously playing with their girlfriend, but are they playing in public? Are they playing with friends? Are they playing with family? May all matter. If you were going to be teaching to strangers, perhaps a good suggestion would be play not with strangers first play at home so this is something deanna and i try to do is i will try to play a two-player version at home way before i bring a game out to public play events and deanna is more going to be more forgiving than someone at a game night who's especially at a game store where i'm trying to promote a game right i'm doing a demo of a game i um, where i'm potentially selling a copy of the game i don't want that to be my first teaching experience for the game by teaching it to deanna first we can first of all we can play through it i can learn the game better i can learn my teaching skills better, how to better explain the game. And I can learn. Uh, and to me, you have to play a game once to be able to teach it well, because as we're going to see in the review section, sometimes you don't realize the importance of certain things until you played the game once. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and Dee's mentioning, you know, teach it with your girlfriend. So, you know, if, you know, do that, if, you know, if, if you, if you are with uh, your girlfriend, if you live, if you live with them, they're a trapped uh, <laughs> a trapped audience. Uh, so it does sound like the girlfriend in this case is a gamer. So you got yeah. that bonus. So so you know use the time to teach them uh, the game, and maybe they can help you focus or you know give feedback as to the teaching rather than the game. You know if they're they'll learn they can learn the game or not learn the game, mm -hmm. but they can focus on seeing what may or may not be working with your teaching. Yeah. Yeah, and that's if you've got someone you trust that closely to, you can get critiqued better that way. Um, as for publicly asking people how'd my teach go, that's up to you. Uh, you may or may not be able to handle that feedback, but it's worth asking if you think you can. Ask people. Like if if you had a hard time, I think in most cases. Players are going to be very, very forgiving. This goes back to our episode on how to be a better GM. You are there teaching the game to a bunch of people who are there to enjoy the game. They are going to be thankful someone is teaching them. And they're going to overlook a lot of little things because you are doing them a favor. You are doing them a service. You are doing something for them. You are giving them the gift of teaching them this game. People are going to be grateful for that. I don't know anyone who's going to tear up your teaching while you're teaching. And Dee is mentioning that, you know, if you have already taught your girlfriend then they're able to help you teach, right? They're able to say, oh, what about that uh, that yeah. section over here that you just completely accidentally skipped over? 
<laughs> yeah, very true. So that that was going to be my final suggestion that I can think of, unless I come up with something before the end of the show, uh, which is to look for someone else to teach. Uh, like maybe you're the person, you're the game teacher, right? You're the the especially in role playing groups, you're you've always been the DM, so you're the DM and you're stuck being the DM. But usually there's other people in the area to teach. If you are that uncomfortable with teaching, have someone else teach or have someone else help you teach or have someone be backup, like Deanna just mentioned. That'd be perfect, right? Like, here, I'm going to teach this game, but can you be here just in case I miss anything? So you get that backup. You get the confidence of having someone who knows the game. Like Danielle mentioned in the chat room earlier, the biggest thing she's worried about is missing something important. Having someone with the background there. Uh, when you show up to a table, you go to teach a game, ask if anyone else is there, is familiar with the game, and if they're comfortable teaching, if you're not. I end up having to do this a lot at the board game blitz, where there's four different tables going so i get to play the game as does anyone at this table know how to teach this okay everyone knows okay you're good and then i go to the next table. is everyone is someone at this table know how to teach this one okay you're not too comfortable okay i may be back you know and i kind of go around and, and and spend my time um plus there's the alternatives we mentioned earlier perhaps you can hand out copies of the rule book you can hand out pdfs you can hand out summary sheets you um which brings me to another one uh you can do watch a play videos the other thing is you can, Heavy Cardboard is good for this. And I don't know if anyone else is doing this. Now, Heavy Cardboard, run by Edward, does teach teaching videos, but they do heavy games. And heavy games are notoriously hard to teach. Well, what he puts available for everyone is their script. So this is something else you can consider. It's not something I've ever done, is you could script your teach ahead of time, or you can find someone else's script. So a part of your problem with public speaking or your problem with with learning or teaching the game is that you're worried you might forget something, having a script could fix that, where you literally have something in front of you that you can read out loud. Now, this does bring up the problem that you're reading out loud to people, which I find tends to put people to sleep and they don't absorb it well. Like, I, I think you're better knowing it, but by having the script there, you can at least go through it to see if there's anything you missed. No, absolutely. Now, again, Edward, Heavy Cardboard, we'll put a link in the show notes. I don't know how many he has out there, and I haven't seen anyone else doing it. Maybe this is a niche. Maybe we, we could start doing Tabletop Bellhop Teach Scripts. That, that could be our, our new niche, because I don't know if it's one that's been through there. But that might help with the anxiety. Even just, like for public speaking, right? I've, I've done public speaking myself. I always prefer to go up with a script, but I never follow it. But the script's there. Right. It's, it's almost the, the Linus's blanket. It's the fact that I've got everything. And as I'm teaching, I can flip through it to make sure I didn't miss anything. And just knowing that I have that there will help. Oh, absolutely. All right. Do we have any other suggestions from the chat room? Uh, no, we've got some uh, other than Zanister making, uh, you know, pointing out that uh, after the teach, then you go in and crush their dreams of ever winning the game again by beating them horribly. Yes. Well, an important part of your teach should always be we are playing this for fun. Yep. It's 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 almost the uh, it is the I'm trying to forget how it starts the the improv show uh, where the the rules are made up and the points don't matter. Well, here the yep. rules aren't made up. The rules matter, but the points don't matter. I, yep. I play to win, but I don't care if I win or lose. And I think everyone should play by that philosophy. Always try your best to win the game, but you know what? It's all about having fun and playing games with other people at the table and having a good time. And if someone crushes everyone else, good on them. Yep. I never played to crush anyone, especially in a teaching game, but I don't go light on anyone either. Same way I do it when I'm playing with my kids. Yep. All right. If you've got a question for us, like our one today from S, head over to the website, click on Ask the Bellhop, or email us at questions at tabletopbellhop.com. We keep growing with the support of fans like you, so please take a minute to subscribe, follow, like, rate, review, click on the bell, thumbs up, or share with your friends. 
We're looking to grow this brand even more with all sorts of things happening. So now's the time to get on the ground floor and get your friends in too. <laughs> yes, bring a friend. That'll, that'll be our new message. Next time you come to watch Tabletop Bellhop Live, bring a friend. Speaking of which, thank you, Nico Petrillo, for the follow. Sign up to receive Tabletop Bellhop Weekly in your inbox. Once a week, I'll be sending out an email recapping all the content we released in the week previous. Blog posts, new podcast episodes, reviews, and anything else we create. You can sign up at newsletter.tabletopbellhop.com or go over to tabletopbellhop.com where you'll find a spot to subscribe in the sidebar. Yeah, we keep getting more subscribers to that. It's pretty awesome. It's great to see. It's it's nice to have everything in one place so you don't have to necessarily follow all of our social media accounts and watch Twitter all the time. All right, due to the fact that the last Wednesday of the month in December happens to fall on Christmas Day, we are going to skip over this month's AMA. We'll be back for another on January 29th. Now, I know we say it multiple times throughout the show. If you got a question, send it. Questions at tabletopbellhop.com, etc. We really mean it this time. We are nearing the end of our list of questions, and we could use some new questions in the pot. More questions to choose from. Uh, you got a nice long topic today. We also do board game recommendations. Pretty much anything you want to know about gaming, game nights, uh, game groups, problem players, problem games, problem rule books, best of, worst of we're here to answer you we're here to answer your questions but this show only works if we have got questions to answer and now a review of dead man's cabal dead man's cabal was designed by daniel newman features art by henning ludvigson and dennis medry it was published by pandasaurus games this year 2019 uh, this is a two to four player action selection game with a ridiculously unique theme and unique scoring system that plays in about an hour to an hour and a half, very much dependent on player AP or analysis paralysis. Now, can you beat this theme? All right. You're a necromancer and you're kind of bored. So you want to go to a party, a dance party specifically. The problem is you've got no friends. So you get a hold of you other fellow necromancers, the other players, and go, hey, let's get together and have a party. And they agree. But of course, they don't have any friends either. And well, what about guests? Well, who needs friends when you can make your own? I gotta say, this is the most intriguing and unique theme in board gaming that I've ever heard. Now, I, we've talked about this game quite a bit since you started getting it to the table. And really, the theme is amazing. We all seem to agree on that. But let's talk about some details. We don't have an unboxing video for this one. No. So how about you tell people what you get in the box? So first off, I don't have an unboxing video because I did get a copy of this from the awesome people at Pendasaurus at Origins 2019. So this is a review copy that I had to beg them for. I went back to the booth multiple times and went up to... Uh, friend Jonathan Gilmore and said, please give me a copy. And he's like, no, 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 please give me a copy. And eventually he's like, all right, fine. At the end of the con, you can have one of our demo copies. So this is a review copy that was provided by Pandasaurus. No other compensation was provided. Now in that rule book, I can't tell you if this is how they came out of the box or how many punch boards it works. I didn't see that. Uh, there is an 11 page rule book uh, with the, the whole Biggie cover. I don't know if people have noticed it, but the, the cover of this game is a parody of the famous Biggie picture uh, with the skull with the crown on the head. Uh, it has plenty of examples featuring large full color images of the game components. Like the, the example pictures and the component pictures in this rule book are the biggest I've ever seen. And that's really nice. Like they're almost true to size. Like it's really nice that way with the rules kind of flowing around the outside edge, a ton of white space too, which is really neat to see. Like you probably could have condensed 
condensed this rulebook down to four pages, but it just would have been a wall of text. Now, I do have to complain one thing, though, that's a weird complaint, but the physical size of the rulebook, it's a uh, standard ticket to ride size box, and the rulebook is the full width and width. It's huge. And it's big, and when you're trying to read it, it's uh, floppy would be the best word I can think of. And even if you put it on a table, it's probably not even going to fit on a small coffee table because this rulebook's huge. So I did have a bit of a problem with that, but other than that... So not a one-hander while you're standing up riding the bus to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly not. And I'll admit, I, I people hate me for this, I fold it in half. I don't do that to a lot of my rule books, but this is one where I literally fold it in half when reading it, so I read one page at a time. It's like trying to hold a newspaper. No, it's not quite that big. Uh, under the rulebook is a themed box insert. This is a nice, you know, the plastic style. It's a nice touch and serviceable. Uh, what it's kind of interesting about this is some of the stuff has specific spots, like the, the big round center board has a spot and the, the board you put the skulls on has a spot, but the rest are just compartments for the various components. There's room for everything, but there isn't a specific place to put each thing. Right. It's uh, reasonably sturdy. You're not too worried about it. Uh, it yeah, it's last. one of those thin plastic that's going to oh. crack or anything. It's solid. I've never actually taken it out to look underneath it. There could be something under there for all I know. <laughs> uh, there's plastic cubes in each of the four player colors. Uh, Ryan's not here to tell us for sure, but they appear to be colorblind friendly because they're not your standard colors. There's like a purple, for example. Um, cubes are actually a bit tinier than most wooden resource cubes you get in most games. A little bit smaller. Uh, they're a nice plastic. I don't know how to describe it, but they're, they're nicer than the Terraforming Mars plastic. It's a nicer plastic. And the other thing I really like is they have rounded edges, so they're not pointy at all. So that was nice. There's no need to draw blood on your resources, <laughs> even though it would be thematically appropriate. It, it would. This is the game that should have, you know, spiky pieces. Uh, your guests are represented by a deck of cards featuring black and white artwork uh i gotta say i like the artwork it's very uh very much caricature style um many if not all the cards are obviously inspired by real people my guess is that every one of the cards is though we haven't quite figured out who they all are yet card quality is solid uh nothing to complain about they're decent cards now the game boards are noteworthy um there are four action boards an action selection board and a scoring board each of these is separate and can be put on the table any way you want. Fair enough. The game also includes a bunch of short and long corridor tiles, squares and rectangles. Now these have absolutely nothing to do with the gameplay, but exist so that you can place them between the main boards and make a dungeon for your necromancer to be playing in. I thought that was a really interesting design choice. Now, I've seen this set up both ways. I've seen you kind of cram it onto a table and, and not use them. Uh, but I've seen also seen you lay it out with the hallways. And there's some good pictures on Board Game Geek of it laid out with the hallways. And I have to say, it really does look fantastic yeah. when it is laid out that way. Now, have you noticed, though, that you get into some sort of reach problems if you, if you lay it out? So the one thing I have found out having played multiple times is that you don't need the scoring board at all. It's not used until the end of the game. You don't track points while you play. So now I literally remove that. I don't even put it on the map. Or if I'm building the dungeon, it's the one that's far away. No one can reach. Um, and then the, uh, the draw cards boards use less frequently than the other ones. So you can kind of put that off to an edge. So once you know which boards can be used more often, we can usually set it up so they're easier to reach. Now, it depends on the table I'm playing on. On my table, I have lots of space, so I like to use the corridors and spread it out. When I'm at the game store that only has three by six tables and we're only got three feet across, I like to try to condense it. So 
I, both work. I, I don't think there's been a problem, but it definitely does help to have some of the boards that are used more often, more centrally located than others that aren't used as often. Seems like this is a great game for a four by four. Yeah. You know, no, I agree. Really, four by four really is probably good. the perfect size for this. If you've got like a table topper or a game tables topper or something like that, it'd probably be great. All right, next is the plastic bits. There's a few of them. They're plastic skulls in four different colors, black, white, red, and gold. A set of white femur-style bones. Uh, this is the game currency. This is your money. And a cow skull or a skull with horns on it. Uh, these are top-notch. Uh, they really are nice components. Uh, I actually expected them... When I saw them online, they looked 3D printed, which probably for the prototype they were. But the actual components aren't. They're obviously uh, injected molded and really nice high-end components. They're that slightly flexible plastic, which you only really need, on, need notice on the bones, which it, to me is actually a good thing because it means they're not going to break. They're not fragile at all. Yeah. So despite the theme, uh, it's, it's very much following in theme with the graphics on the cards. It's caricature-like. Yeah. Um, the skulls look great. Now I've seen the skulls with some shading paint on them, and they're yeah, fantastic. So there are they're solid minis, and if you want to go to that next step, they do take paint, and you can make them look really fantastic that way. Yeah, I could see that. It's, it's not a not something I would bother doing with yeah. my copy of the game, but it, it would be it be easy enough. You'd be able to do a dip, right? Uh, yeah. Dip some more modern. We used to always joke about the Citadel dip being a thing. It really is now. There are things called dip paints that are specifically made just for going into the resources. It probably work really well. Like I bet you could use a wood stain to do it without having to get into miniature painting. Right. Um, other things in the bag is a silt screen bag again with the biggie skull on it uh, that all the skulls go into. Some cardboard punch outs, very little of them. Runes in white and black and some Vortex tokens. Overall, component quality is really impressive. Uh, this is the kind of game that has table presence. It catches people's attention just sitting out on the table, especially if you use those dungeon tiles to make it look like a, a dungeon, right? Or sorry, the, the corridor tiles to make it look like a dungeon. It does help that I run at a local game store that tends to have a lot of role players in it, and it tends to get their attention. Uh, the boards are bright and colorful, and it, it, it just it looks great. It has a nice table presence, even without people noticing the skulls. Yeah. Now, I don't know if I'd call it colorful necessary. What it looks like is uh, Torchlit Dungeon. Is the, yeah. the the overall color scheme is Torchlit Dungeon. Um, but yeah. it's bright for a game about death. So <laughs> True it's enough. definitely got that. Now, now that we know what you get, how do you play? All right. So after building out the dungeon and setting it up, I'm not going to get into how to set up the game. You're each going to get a skull of every color. So four skulls. Again, red, white, black, and gold. And a starting hand of cards. Uh, these are the people you can summon, uh, the, the dead you can raise. And you're going to start your turn by drawing a skull from the silk cream bag. And then you're going to go to the ossuary board, which has a grid of skulls on it. Three by something, depending on the number of players. Three by three or four or five. Uh, what you're going to do is you're going to put a new skull on one of the rows on the left-hand side. Everything's going to slide down and a skull's going to bump out the right-hand side. That one you're going to take into your hand. Then you're going to look at your hand and all the skulls you have, which at the start of the game will be one of every color plus one new one, and you're going to pick one of those skulls to do an action. The color of the skull determines the action you're going to take, and this action you take is called the private action. Only you get to do it. You get to pay all the costs, do all the things, get all the benefits by yourself. Everyone else just watches you play. Then you look back at the ossuary, and there's one column that's highlighted. I think it's the third one in. You look at that column and figure out which skull color has the majority then, and then everyone does a public action that everyone gets to take, again, starting with the active player. So your placement action not only chooses what skulls you have 
uh, or, or is added to your pri- to your private action options. Yep. But what's available for the next player to get, as well as potentially shifting what the public action is going to be. Yeah. Uh, that's I mean that's a lot going on with one move, <laughs> and it's it's a really simple mechanic once you see it in play. Like it's not at all it's, complicated. Yeah, I know it's a simple mechanic, but what that enables yeah. is pretty intense. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> to, to be honest, it is honestly the the highlight of this game. I love that action selection. I'm kind of jumping ahead to my thoughts, but right. I love that action selection system. Now, after all players have done the current public action, you pass the bag to the left and play continues. Game ends when one player has run out of cubes, which we'll get into where those go in a minute, or someone has seven seven guests. At this point, everyone gets one more turn, and then you do final scoring. Now, final scoring includes points on your people you've summoned. That's the basic part, as well as scoring the oracle, which we're going to talk about a lot in a moment. Now, here are the four actions that can be taken. So, again, they're based on the skull. So, if you spend a red skull, I'm probably going to pronounce these words wrong. You go to the sepulcher. You go there to get more skulls. Or you go to the scriptorum. You go there to get runes. Or you go to the athenarium. You go there to get more bones, money, or more cards. Or you go to the sanctum, where you're going to play your skulls onto a big summoning circle with, like, a big pentacle and lots of lines on it. And by putting skulls out the right pattern, you're going to get to play cards from your hands. And then those runes you got from the scriptorum can be played on the undead you've raised to let you place cubes in the oracle. Now, the oracle is a huge part of this game. There are seven scoring spots on the oracle, and you're placing cubes here. Now, the board scores at the end of the game, but only players with the most cubes and second most cubes on each of those seven spots will actually score that spot during endgame scoring. Uh, So it's basically an area majority minigame as part of the game. Now, thematically, it's supposed to be that you're going to the Oracle predicting what you're going to do at the end of the game. So you're predicting that you're going to summon lots of people or you're predicting you're going to have skulls for That's the thematic tie-in. Um... The different scoring spots are based on, for example, which color of skull you've used the most to summon undead, for having skulls left over at the end of the game, for having areas of connected cubes in the scriptorum, which is another place you spend your cubes, and then there's one that's just worth 20 points for the person with the most cubes and 10 for the player with the second most. Now, I think we've mentioned any number of times about the Oracle and the troubles of getting new players to grasp its importance in that endgame scoring. It is huge. The Oracle is huge. And like I'm giving you the brief overview, I could try to explain it more detail. It's basically a whole mini game within the game of where you're placing your cubes on the Oracle. It's it's something almost disconnected from the rest of the gameplay. Now, I got to say, this is a super broad overview to really understand this. Like I'm saying, white scriptorum, go here to get runes. There's more to it. It's you can take a bone and get one rune or you can spend a bone and get two runes and then you can go to the black market. There's more to it. Um, To really understand the interaction of the cards, the runes, the oracle, you kind of have to see this game. But I think this gives you an idea of how the game is played. Basically, draw a skull, use it to determine your public action or determine the public action as well. Then spend a skull to do a private action. Then everyone does that public action you selected earlier. Actions are going to let you get more cards, collect skulls, collect runes, and then spend skulls to summon guests and spend runes. When you summon guests, you want to spend runes to get points on the Oracle for endgame scoring. That's kind of the the really brief overview. Now, I brought Dead Man's Cabal home from Origins, and the first time actually sitting down and playing it, I was extremely impressed. I absolutely love the unique theme. Like, nothing out there compares to Necromancer Dance Party, the board game. Come on. Like, you you still can't beat that. I don't know if anyone will ever beat Necromancer Dance Party, the board game. 
I also really dig the metagame that happens in this game. Every time I play Dead Man's Cabal, players spend time trying to guess who each of the cards are. And not only that, most of the players that I play with end up telling a story as they're playing. So it's kind of like the metagame in Gloom, where they're going to pick specific people to advance invite to their dance party based on the cards they're not going to grab this guy because he's worth 12 points they're going to grab this guy because he's a flapper and he looks like he fits in good with this other person i've grabbed earlier and don't you think they'd make a cute couple going to the party together i've always been really amused by that coming out in the game yeah while they don't name the guests on the cards there are some very definite visual cues as to who it is this card the cards are referring to when you actually see them yeah, I've actually thought about Googling some of the ones I haven't quite figured out or wondering if we're right on, but there's always been that metagame. The other thing I love about this game, is already mentioned a couple times now, is the table presence. Uh, I, I run a lot of games in public. I run public play events at various venues around the city. Any game that catches people's eye, especially non-gamers who walk by and go, ooh, what's that? I said, this one in particular tends to get the role player's attention. It's like, ooh, do you have a dungeon set up? I'm like, no, it's a board game. We'll play a necromancer, summoning the dead for a dance party. And, that, and all of a sudden, that role player might become a board gamer. Uh, there aren't many gamers out there that aren't are just going to walk by this one both due to the component quality and the way the board is designed and i yeah like sean mentioned the the build a dungeon thing is a gimmick but it works now i do have to complain about the rune tokens they are tiny like they are the littlest tiniest chits i think i've ever seen in a board game they're a little fiddly to deal with um i personally wish the scriptorum was twice the size and those chits were a little bit bigger but component quality wise that's my only complaint yeah, no, it's it's one of those things where I, you know, I found myself getting caught up by this game. I remember the first time uh, I saw it on the table. It must have been our first Extra Life, the first time we did the Extra Life. Yeah, board yeah game the Extra Life preview of it. And it was just one of those things where I was walking around with a camera and went, wow, what the heck is this? Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, it's not like I haven't seen most of these games sitting around. But, again, it was just really interesting mm -hmm. to look at for everyone, gamers or non-gamers alike. All right, as for gameplay, I really like the action selection system in this game. I would like to see that concept be taken and put into another game. I would literally not complain if someone took a whole cloth. They don't have to be skulls, obviously, but if I got to put cubes on a track and it bumped the cube off and I had to look at a row for a public act, I'd love that. And whether it's public, private actions, maybe you can do something a little new for it. I've never seen that particular action selection mechanic before, and I thought it was really neat. I would love to see that, the, the whole sliding thing. I, that was great. Each of the actual actions you do are actually rather interesting. And I've always had fun playing the game. Like I like taking more skulls and trying to get my combos and making sure I have the right runes ready so that when I go to summon someone, I can always use two runes when I summon them. And I like trying to make sure I collect the right kind of set of colors. And I like having to make sure I have the right skulls to summon the right people so that I can take advantage of the fact that I know Sean's going to summon. So on my turn, I got to make sure I have the bones so I can summon toy. I love that interaction of the players. But then you get to find scoring final scoring in dead man's cabal is some of the most opaque and obtuse i've ever seen in a board game well you do get points for the cards you've collected that's nice and simple you're going to get point for every card you played in your tableau that's pretty standard and lots of board games do that the majority of your points like serious majority like 75 percent of your points are going to come from the oracle board and until you see this scored at least once there is no way you're going to fully grasp exactly how it's going to play out and how many points can be earned through the oracle every time i teach this game i try as hard as i can to stress how important it is and i've yet to have someone come through the end of it and go oh yeah that's exactly as i expected it to be it always surprises people 
It confuses people every time. Yep. I, and I have to say, when it comes to, I'm just sort of flipping through the uh, the forums on BGG, and it's all about scoring. I mean, yeah, the Oracle uh, scoring. Every, well, it's not even just, I mean, everything has to do with scoring and people trying to sort of place their own concepts is like, oh, I think it would work this way. And, and, and because that's, they, they just don't get the way it actually scores. Yeah. It's, it's like this odd scoring system ends up with end game scores that are almost never close. So one of the things I love about Terraforming Mars is the fact that at the end of the game, after playing for three hours, I look at the scores and they're always like in the same section of the scoreboard, right? It's always like, oh, if I had just done this little thing a little different, I might have won. This is completely different. Like the average gap between first and last is usually over 100 points. I've seen games where it's over 200 points difference. I've seen games where the lead player has more than 150 points from the second place player. And then the thing is, you don't see this until the end of the game. So it's kind of hard to tell how many one player is doing. So you can't even do with the thing where, wow, Sean's got a huge lead. We need to attack the leader. Well, you don't necessarily know that. Now, looking at the Oracle board, you could be like, well, Sean's got majority on a lot of spots and you could try to do the math in your head, but like I said, it's opaque. It's just not obvious. Uh, maybe that's one of the fixes is you track points as you're going. I don't know. But then you'd be constantly adjusting it every time someone plays a new cube on the Oracle board. So I don't know, because the rest of Dead Man's Cabal is amazing. Like, I really love playing the game. I like the mechanics. I like the way things play out. And I got to admit, the first time I played... The scoring system was unique. I'm like, oh, that's different. The second time I played, I actually liked the scoring system because now I got it, right? Now, oh, now I see. I want to try to collect skulls. And if I do this, and and trust me, ignore that 20-10 point. Like, maybe toss one cube in there. But, like, the 20 points for that one spot is not going to match the 180 points you get for having summoned a bunch of people with black skulls. But over time, it just started to grate on me more and more. I, after many plays, I actually stopped having fun. Once we get to end game scoring, I'm like, I had a great time playing. And I almost, eh, someone won. I don't care because it's just so weird. Now, I will note this took time. My first experience, I had fun. Like for the, the one and done game, I think it's good. The one and done game, you're probably not going to care about scoring. You're going to get to the end and go, wow, that Oracle score is different than I thought. But you're going to have had a good time. Sure, I didn't get it, but it was fun. Now, the next couple plays, I actually had a good time because I knew what I was doing and my scores skyrocketed like into the hundreds and 300 and 400 point range. But then more plays and more plays, I just started to feel less and less enamored, but just with that end game. So I got to say, if you're like most gamers and you're only going to get your game to the table like less than a handful of times, one or two times, you'll probably never get to that point where the end game just has died out on you. My first experience was great and it was only after many plays that while I've had fun for the bulk of the game, I wasn't keen on the end game. And I gotta say, by not being keen on the end game, it kind of sours the entire experience. Yeah. I'm at the point now where if someone says, hey, remember that dungeon game you brought out, the, the Necromancer game, can we play it? I'll bring it out. I have no problem with that. I'll play it. It's not a terrible game anyway, but I can't see me being the initiator anymore. I'm, not, I'm no longer hyped about this game. I'm no longer excited to get it out to the table myself. Yeah, uh, and I'm noticing that they actually had to uh, do an FAQ uh, about the number of skulls because apparently it's a common thing on a four player game to run low on skulls. Yep. Uh, they that. actually they actually had to uh come up with the FAQ to handle both running low on runes and running low on skulls. Well, runes we uh, run out of every game. Yeah. So uh and so you but you can still perform the scriptorium yeah, once yeah. all the rooms are taken. That that was I found clear in the rule book. 
Okay. We all never actually ran out of skulls. We've come like like so ridiculously close multiple times. Right. But yeah, so they actually they came out with an FAQ on BGG specifically because people are saying in four player games we ran out of skulls. Um it sounds like some people are using hoarding uh strategies that aren't necessarily good strategies but exist. Well, one of the Oracle spots is the number of skulls you have left at the end of the game. So the game does encourage at least two players to hoard. Right. right. Makes sense. All right. Well, for a more in-depth review of Dead Man's Cabal, head over to tabletopbellhop.com and click on Reviews. Yeah, I go into a lot more detail about each of the individual actions there. And now, the Bellhop's Tabletop, where we look back and summarize what's happened since we were last here. What games hit our tables? All right, every week we like to take a look back at the games we played, any events we attended, and other cool gaming stuff that's going on. All right, this week I finally got to try out Carpe Diem, the latest Steffenfeld from Aaliyah, published by Ravensburger. This was a 2019 Spiel des Jahres nominee that was beat out by Wingspan. Actually, it was the Kenner Spiel, the Gamers Game nominee this year. And to steal a joke from Twitter, it's about time. <laughs> Oddly, it's not, though, right? Like, this is what Gentis should have been called. Because right. Gentis really is about time. Uh, this is a tile drafting game with a... Uh, it's Steffenfeld. It's a pasted-on theme. It happens to be Roman this time. It could have been anything about building buildings and farms. Decided to go with Roman. It's particularly set at 1 BC, which I don't know if I've ever set a game in 1 BC before. Um, it's a point salad. Again, Steffenfeld is kind of what you'd expect going into it. Uh, each player gets a player board and a frame. The player board's a grid. I didn't do the math to figure out how much spots are on the grid, but you get a grid and you get a frame that goes around it. On the grid is a spade spot. That's where you have to place your first thing. And nine bandoleros, or bandaroles. And this was one of the problems we had with the game. Bandaroles, not bandoleros. That was something else. Uh, these are spots you put markers on. Uh, like everyone else at the table, you're probably Googling what that means. It's some kind of Roman scroll thing. Uh, board and frame are randomized and are all different. So you're going to get different frames every time. And I got to say, I like the fact the random frame, it doesn't only go to get, it goes together anyway. So any of the four pieces can go with each other and you shake those up and hand them out, which is cool. In the center board, which is not the player board are seven like spots. Each of those is going to get four tiles randomized player meeples start on one random spot and each turn you move your meeple. And you have to move, and you go either one spot left or one spot right and take one of the tiles. If a spot's empty, you jump over it. That is the main mechanic of this game, and it's, I gotta admit, really brilliant for how simple that is. Tile taken is then placed on your player board, uh, starting at the spade and building outwards. Tiles have to match, so this is Carcassonne. You can't, you can't have a grassland touching a non-grassland, you can't put the edge of a building next to your frame. Your frame is all grass. Everything has to match. Uh, on the tiles are all kinds of things. Villas, fields, buildings, and fountains. Some of the tiles are standalone. You put them, they do a thing. Others get placed, they're part of, and you you have to finish them, right? Um, they're multi-part. All the fields can be from two to four squares long. The villa can be as big as you want to try to make it. Uh, those only give you something when you complete them. So any of the multi-part buildings, you get nothing if they're incomplete, and you get something if you finish them. So it's a, it's a six by six grid. So 36. Six, no, it's got to be bigger than that. No, it is six by six, 36 spots. Wow, it seemed bigger than that. All right. In my <laughs> I, head, I picture way bigger. All right, yeah, sure. Six counting, by six grid. So, so. Seemed like more than that. You were going to draft, there are 28 tiles when playing playing each round. So you're going to draft all 28. Uh, you're going to have all of them draft. You're playing three players. One of them gets tossed out. 
If you're playing two players, I think you toss half of them out. Uh, the rulebook actually used the word penultimate, which I've never seen in a rulebook before, which was amusing. Um, after all your tiles are drafted, there's a scoring round, and then new tiles are placed out. Do that four times, and then do final scoring. Now, scoring is really neat, and again, this is a highlight. This is where Steffenfeld's brilliance comes out. At the start of the game, you put out a bunch of cards on a grid, and each scoring phase... The player is going to take one of the little discs and they're going to put it on a spot between two of the cards on the grid and they're going to score those two scoring cards. Once that spot's taken, it, it's done for the rest of the game. No one can take that spot again. This this thing is really neat. Now, at this point, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, I've only played once at this point. I want to play it more. I'm not going to get into the different building types or resources and what the heck a banderole is. I've only played once. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it in the future weeks. I will say, so far, I'm already impressed. Like, uh, it seems pretty solid. This is yet another modern, quick Steffenfeld. Steffenfeld, uh, a game that fits in with Bruges or... Um, why can I never remember the name? Straussburg. Straussburg, another one of those quick hour, hour and a half. Uh, it was an hour and a half, including teach, setup, and punching the game with three players when we played the other day. So there is a first expansion already lined up for this one. Oh, that one. doesn't surprise me. Uh, so at all. So it's basically a a, a, a str uh, strips that go above the banderole bar. Okay. Uh, and the, some of the strips can be upside down. When a player places a building tile on a space with banderole, instead of removing that banderole from the game, they place it on the first empty space huh. on the bonus strip. No, what's interesting is that sounds like they that should have been in the base box. Because while we were playing, we we're like, why are there tokens for these banderoles? Because all it is is when you cover a token, you take the token off and you go up on a scoring track. Right. And then the token goes anywhere. And we're like, I guess it's just to remind you to do it. So now it makes sense that they. So now, so now you've got a bonus uh, somewhere a, to put them. A bonus fish, herb, chicken, or grape coin, bread, etc. Yep. Uh, or a or a victory card, three point card. So cool. There you go. Sounds neat. I don't need an expansion yet. I'm, I'm not that much of a completionist. <laughs> uh, All right. The other thing I got to the table because this game was quicker than I thought it would be. So we were done nice and early on Monday is I finally broke open. Well, I had broken it open before, but finally got to use the Imhotep, a new dynasty expansion for the first time. Now, this is a modular expansion that contains completely new boards, like that completely replaced the boards in the original game and can work with them, and they have C and D sides. So in the original game, you have all your different, your five different locations and A and B sides. Now you have a C and D side, which actually gives you 1028 possible combinations of, of being able to play Imhotep, which I thought was really neat. I uh, sat down with Sean Hamilton, not Sean from Hamilton, and we played through one game, two players. I let him pick two of the new boards. So we wanted to try two of the new boards. We tried a new pyramid which was interesting because you were building the corridors inside the pyramid and there was a little Imhotep meeple. And when your stones were delivered, you covered up spots in a track that were worth points based on when you covered them. But the neat bit was whenever anyone went to the quarry, they had the option of moving the Imhotep meeple to the next empty spot. So I really liked that because it gave 
it added a level of strategy and planning to when you hit the quarry. Not just, hey, I'm out of stone, I have to go to the quarry. So that was neat. I like that one. And we used a new burial chamber. Again, I don't remember if this was the C or D side. And it was very much the pyramids. So you were building up. So you were, when your bricks went there, you put them in a row. And I think there was room for five or six bricks. Or you could put your brick on top of two existing bricks and you made a pyramid shape. And then you scored based on an area of your bricks touching each other. But you took the number of bricks and multiplied it by the number of levels you managed to be on. So that could get to huge points. I thought that was interesting. Definitely more complicated than the A and B side. There's no multiplication required in the base game. So it, it just steps up that difficulty a little bit. Not that multiplication of like four times six is hard. But still, it's it's more complicated than count the bricks and divide by three or whatever. Right. Uh, the problem with that one was it wasn't good two-player. Two-player, there just wasn't, like, it was my big block of bricks and Sean's big block of bricks, and we couldn't really interfere with each other. So that wasn't a good board for two players. So that did seem to be an issue. The other, the Imhotep board worked fine, the, the pyramid. The other thing we tried is the gods, and this is another one I strongly recommend. You do not use the god cards when playing two players. This adds a betting mechanism to the game. So at the start of the game, you're going to put three gods out, randomly selected, and I think there's five different gods, one for each of the boards. And what they let you do is everyone's going to get two scarabs. You can spend a scarab on your turn to bet you're going to do something. So one of the gods, and I'm, I don't know which god was which, so let's say it's Anubis, and Anubis is the pyramids, is I am going to have the most bricks in the pyramids by the end of the game. And if I take that bet on turn one and two, I'm going to get seven points if I'm right, and I'm going to lose three points if I'm wrong. If I take that bet on turns three and four, I'm going to get five points or lose two. And if I take that bet on turns five or six, I'm going to get two points or lose one, which I thought was neat. And then each of the cards are for the different boards. So there's one for, like, there's a god for the pyramids, a god for the obelisk, a god for the, the burial grounds. I don't, I think there's even a god for the markets. So that was neat, but again, two players. It's it, Any area I control with two players is I have it or you have it. Yeah. And it was really simple for me to go, well, I have more in the pyramid. Well, I have more here, and you're not going to be able to stop me. So it, I, it seems like a neat addition with more players. Well, now, it's, the, it's one of those things where, I mean, it, it, this game is definitely recommended best of four. I mean, yeah. pretty much hands down. I, I would work with three. I don't see any reason three would be bad, but... The base game was fine with two players. I didn't see any reason not to play it at two. This expansion, I definitely wouldn't. Plus, it seems like some of the boards. Now, we haven't tried the rest of the boards. There are new market cards, and I got to admit, I like them. Uh, the ones we saw. So, one of the market cards lets you expand your um, your storage. So, you can now hold five st or two more stones, so seven stone. And there are a bunch that let you ship to a port that's already been delivered to. So that's a big change to the game, the chance that card could come up and you can ship to a full spot. Uh, plus now when you use a red card, instead of discarding it, it stays in your hand because one of those gods can give you points for red cards. So that's another slight twist to the game. What's interesting about that is in the previous game, we've gone through the market deck at four players using the B side of the market board and the B side of um, one of the other boards that you can get market cards from. I don't think with this expansion you'd go through the deck, but if you did, those red cards aren't getting shuffled back in. So that's that would make a smite, slight change to the, the the mechanics of the game. Yeah. Overall, thumbs up. Yep. And I think we. I think overall, I think we're we're you're loving Imhotep. I mean, you know, pretty much consistently. I have to say, the one thing about Imhotep that I find a little frustrating is they have this habit of giving out mini games and and additions at like yes. Gen Con constantly. If you look at the list of all these, you know. Given out at Spiel, given out at Gen Con, given out at Gen Con. 
if you're if you're a completionist who you know really loves the game yeah. and would like to play more of it, there's so yeah. many of these pieces that you just can't get your hands on unless you've been to all the cons. Uh, and I find uh, that the board really game frustrating. Check, board game geek has a geek store of add-ons. I bet you they're all in there. Uh, possibly. That the the geek store, it's called the geek store, not the board yep. game geek marketplace, but the geek store right. tends to sell con exclusive promos for I think they're five bucks each, which nah, yeah, <laughs> as well, opposed some, to go to a con uh, and get it free. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, some of these I don't think are worth five bucks. Yeah, uh, that's you know, it's, it's it, like right? a couple it's, of cards, it's one tile or it's, two yeah, tiles. Yeah, something like something simple, simple like that. But I, I, I just get a little frustrated. Like it's one thing if you get something like DC Deck Builder and they give you know one special card. Who cares if you don't have, you know, the Thanos card or the, you know, whatever. Yes, I'm cross-universing there. Uh, yeah. You know, that, that's not a big deal. But on a game like this, I feel like, you know, when they've got this, you know, mini game expansion, um, it's, it's a little more frustrating because there aren't that many components in the first place. Yeah. You know, one card when you've already got 144 cards in the base game isn't as big a deal when as, you know, a whole extra card when there's only, you know, five cards in the base game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I have thoughts on it. It's almost a whole other show. <laughs> I could probably talk about there we go. additions like that. I Imhotep also has a print-and-play expansion, which yeah. is interesting. I, I actually printed it, and I can't remember what it is. It's another betting. It was obviously, I have a feeling it was done before the gods existed. Right. Is that the Stonemation's Wager mini expansion? I don't know. I don't remember. That's it the was betting. like the quarry or something. Yeah, that's 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 the betting one from 2016, one of their Gen Con ones, which could have turned into a print and play easily. Enough yeah, I don't know. I remember finding on board game like, oh, print and play. I actually printed it. I don't know. Maybe it's in my box or it's right there. It might be right there. Is this it? No, that's not it. It was up here for a while. I think I finally brought it downstairs. But overall, yeah, Imhotep's still fun, but I... I, I the base game's still fun. So far, there was nothing in this expansion that was like, oh, this, I needed this, right? Well, so it wasn't... And to be fair, though, you probably shouldn't have started with it at two-player. Three-player even well, probably would have been a, a better yeah, start yeah. for that particular uh, expansion, it seems like. Fair enough. Fair enough. But it wasn't like, you know, Galactic Orders for Core Worlds, where it completed the base game. This was definitely an add-on expansion. You, right. you were definitely adding things to the base game, adding more options. I have obviously I haven't played out Imhotep yet. I'm not bored of the baseboards. Right. I haven't actually used the B-sides all that many times because I teach the game so often. All right. Well, how about a look ahead? Uh, what do you have planned for the coming week? All right. This weekend, uh, we're doing a kids game at CG Realm. So for anyone listening live uh, or for people, no, we don't put the segment on YouTube. Nope. So basically for you, those of you live, if you're in Windsor, we are going to be featuring Tori's favorite game. Uh, we're, we're hoping to get Tori out to play some Rhino Hero. That is going to be the game of the night at the CG Realm this coming weekend on the 14th from 5 p.m. till 10 p.m. Uh, Ian will be doing demos. I'm going to bring my copy of the game. So we have two, two of them there. So we are doing Rhino Hero. Uh, Great stocking stuffer for kids and adults alike, I gotta say, because I adults have had a lot of fun with this. Not game. a great game if you're a heavy coffee drinker, I found, but that's yeah. just me. <laughs> you were drinking red eye that night, too, I was, so yes, that, yes. that might have made it a little worse. I'm, I'm shaky, I'm shaky on a good day, and you know, at whatever yeah. time in the morning that was, yeah, that was, yeah, it was like two or so, the yeah. second two, I think, yeah, so I, it was really three. Yeah, so... Uh, week after that, we will be at Easy Mode. So those of you listening to the podcast, head out to Easy Mode on Ottawa Street, Ottawa and Parents, on the 21st of December for our holiday party. Uh, I don't know if I own any holiday-themed games, but if I can find any, I'm going to bring them. Um, so you are back on Saturday, then? 
yeah, this is on Saturday. There's no University of Windsor event this weekend. So we should be there the third Saturday of the month going forward. That, that is the expected day. Okay. Uh, also note, Wednesday nights. Wednesday night, Roger Malosh, patron of the show, uh, local gamer and game designer, is now hosting a Wednesday night every Wednesday at Easy Mode. Um, I think he called it for gamers for gamery old farts and retired people. But non-gamery old farts and retired people are welcome to attend. Um, I do know alcohol has been a large part of those gaming events as people have been doing a little more beer and pretzels gaming those nights but yeah head out to, to easy mode on wednesday nights i guess every week that's we're here doing this so i haven't gotten to check it out myself there we go now a quick shout out and thank you to some of our vip guests our patreon backers we greatly appreciate their support brian kurtz thanks brian you hold rusila thank you graham barnett thanks jeff seuss saw you popping in thanks for showing up William Fisher, thank you. Well, that was the double bell. That means it's time for my shift to come to an end, and we're going to have to lock those front doors. Though the doors of the lobby are closed, you can always find us across the web and social media as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Drop by our website at tabletopbellhop.com for more gaming content. If you like the content we're providing, would like to support our continued efforts and try to keep the light on and pay for our hosting expenses and so on, please consider tipping the bellhop at patreon.com slash tabletopbellhop. Remember to join us here on Twitch every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern and watch for the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast to hit your podcatchers and YouTube at 2 a.m. every Tuesday. You can also catch the Bellhop's Tabletop Twitch Friday nights at 8.30 yeah, maybe sending people to easy mode on Wednesday night wasn't the best thought. That <laughs> <laughs> about wraps up the time we have for the show tonight. For those of you here live, thank you for joining us. And be sure to stick around and join us in the penthouse suite for the after show. For Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you. And game on. Graphic design by Ryan Weiss at RPG & Co. Music is Nimbus by Evening Land. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license.